1: Episode 5, a.k.a. AKA FDR Part 2. So, in our last episode, (laughs) um, FDR became president and, uh, you know, was nearly assassinated. Um, uh,
0: But, you know, survived, was sworn in, gave his famous,
1: The Only Thing We Have to Fear is Fear Itself speech right
0: yeah if he can survive polio and assassination and again he is the only guy in the room smiling but that's going to change
1: how are you buddy you good
0: oh i'm doing great great doing fantastic great. i love fdr he is the consummate politician think of caesar without the military aspect I mean, this guy can do everything and he's about to and i just i just find it very inspiring especially from how low he's starting
1: And, you know, as you might expect with me, um, I went into this prep going, I'm going to find out the real story of FDR. I'm going to find the dirt. I'm going to
0: find, you know, because, you know. And there is some.
1: Well, there is, but not a lot. Right, right. (laughs) I'm
0: I'm pleasantly surprised by that. There's not a lot. There's not a lot.
1: Yeah, he fucked around a bit and he fucked up a bit. He made some mistakes as president, but... You know, when you when you look at what he was trying to do, it's a bit like uh, uh, Caesar's reforms or Alexander's reforms. When you're trying to accomplish a huge amount in a very short amount of time, and you're going mm-hmm. balls to the wall with it, yeah, you're going to yeah. fuck up. But yeah. um, you know, I could not uh, really find any heinous stuff. Now you can look at Teddy Roosevelt, and he did plenty of heinous yeah. shit. He was yeah. he was a, a, a racist, and uh, you know, he did amazing <laughs> things fun. like. On one hand, I'm a huge fan of Teddy. What he did with the national parks, what he did with trust busting. Just yeah. him as a character, getting sh- getting shot in the chest in the middle of a speech and <laughs> Ugh, continuing the speech. Uh, you Sorry. know, riding horse when he's president, riding horses around Washington, firing guns in the air. Uh that's how sca- it should be riding up behind people and firing guns in the air just to scare them. I mean, he was like, I'd love you to know
0: do it. I'd that's love executive privilege. Yeah.
1: I'd love to do a series on Teddy Roosevelt one day, but, you know, he he also had a very dark side. But um, FDR, yeah, not so much. Now, as you, I think you mentioned in the last episode, he was a politician's politician. One biographer I read said that uh, quoted someone I, can't, I don't have it in front of me now, but said that um, FDR once said you could draw a line on a map of the United States that went through every state, you know, a zigzaggy right. line. He would be able to go across that line and tell you every mm-hmm. political district and zone that the line went through and who the important power players were. Exactly. In, in, all of those. He fucking knew everyone, and not just in the Democratic Party, but on both sides. And he knew how to, as we'll see you know, uh, in this episode, he knew how to get everyone working on the same hymn sheet, regardless of what side of the political aisle they were yeah. from. He could find talent and get it to work for him. He he was a master at this sort of political maneuvering.
0: Yeah, he, he was a charmer. And how many times do we say um, early on in the Roman Civil War, if Caesar could have just got Pompey and sat him down in a tent and talked to him, you've got to imagine an hour later that they're going to come out laughing, joking, slapping each other's back, and it would have been over with. FDR could charm the fuck out of anybody. He just had that way about him. And no matter who he wa- no matter who you were, by the end of a conversation, he was calling you by your first name. I think he even did this to the King of England, and you would be calling him Mr. Roosevelt and later on Mr. <laughs> President. but that was li- he literally was just if if Rome if uh, America had kings, he would have been one, and he just had this way of just charming he just exuded confidence and good cheer, and it just caught. It just caught on, and he was just an amazing, charming person.
1: As we'll see in a future episode, even Stalin missed him <laughs> when he died.
0: Yeah, I
1: think you know he and Stalin had a genuine uh, life he, for each other.
0: Yeah, and he went out to he went out on a charm offensive against Stalin. He, he, you know, he he knew exactly what he was doing. He turned it up to eleven when talking to Stalin. Mm.
1: Um. So anyway, let's let's. Talk a little bit more about what happens after he becomes president. Now, I think, again, as you said, um, like literally within an hour of him becoming president, he gets uh, all of his cabinet sworn in and he just gets down to it. Um, Yeah. Reminds me uh, in a way of uh, the Australian prime minister in the early 70s, Gough Whitlam. You ever
0: heard of Gough Mm -hmm. Whitlam? No, I think you're making that name up, but please continue. (laughs)
1: Gough is a legend in this country. He he passed away only last year or I think, and last year or so he was in his 90s. But he was um, a, a Labor Prime Minister in the early 70s in Australia. Labor is our Democrats basically, right? The supposedly mm-hmm. the left side, although they're all kind right. of center fucking I mean, right now, but Correct. Back right. in those, and Labor hadn't been in power federally in this country for like 40 years when Gough mm. got in, the country was backwards and fucked. Um he, when he came in as Prime Minister in, in 70, 71, 72, I think, um, he, um, he he got his Vice Prime Minister, his, his Deputy Prime Minister, as we call it here. They mm. sat down in a week with no Cabinet because it was like Cabinet was on vacation here. He sat down and enacted about 20 laws, the two of them. They just sat down, yeah. wrote them out on yellow legal pads to, to revitalize the economy, unemployment, uh, just you know, military, get us out of Vietnam, whole bunch of things. He just sat down and boom, cracked it out in the first yeah. week or two with no one else. Just these two guys locked away in a room. He enacted Shit. more legislation in two weeks uh, than you know normally got done in in years. Here. Right. So, but I, and I think FDR was probably a big inspiration for Goff Whitlam.
0: Yeah. Well, and not to jump ahead, but li- literally, we're going to find out that. As, as time goes on, FDR is going to use people, but the big decisions like, like this guy, he, he keeps them for himself. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing until he's ready to make an announcement. He, he uses them to gather information, but all the big decisions are going to be with him and with him alone. And he is just this absolute dynamo. And as we're about to see, he had a lot of, a lot of plans and he knew what he needed to do. And he just jumped right in with solid good cheer and just and just nailed it from the get go.
1: And one of the things that is also important to understand when we're talking about this era of history is that it was an era of remarkable change in terms of technology. Electricity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was relatively new in the early part of the century in most people's lives.
0: But right. also, for those who had it, yeah.
1: Yeah. But FDR uh, revolutionized the art of political campaigning by using uh, radio. Initially, you know, mm-hmm. his fireside chats, where he would talk to everyone in America, was um, you know a remarkable innovation that had you know that, right. that obviously led to his popularity and his ability to you know build up the morale of the American people at a time when things were pretty fucked. Um, the Ooh, same way that, that Churchill yeah. used radio to to right. inspire motivate the Brits, FDR was doing that on the other side of the Atlantic.
0: Would it be fair to say that the fireside chats were like Caesar's commentaries?
1: Oh, no. No? No. Well, maybe. I think so. if I'm, I'm going to
0: say I'm going to say maybe to a yes. <laughs> no, but he literally brought the White House into their rooms. Hey, this is what's going on. I'm here with you. I'm doing everything I can. I'm trying to help. But he literally, you know, it was almost like a father figure. And he will become a father figure because he's in office so long. But he literally becomes a father figure to these people. Follow me. I, I know the answer. I will lead the way. And again, not jumping too far, but he was... He was not an ideologue. He was a pra- he was a pragmatist. He said, try something. If it doesn't work, just admit it. Just get it out there. Yeah, I try this. I screwed up and then try something else. But whatever you do, try something. That was his attitude. So he was just going into this and he was just ready to start throwing things and trying them around because it was damn sure a lot more than what Hoover had not attempted.
1: Yeah. I think I've got a quote to that effect uh, later on somewhere. Mm. But according
0: to one biographer, I think it was Jean Edward
1: Smith's uh, biography on FDR that I read. You know, she said the riddle, the great riddle of his life, is how this Hudson River aristocrat, a son of privilege who never depended on a paycheck, became <laughs> the champion of the common man. Mm. The answer most frequently suggested is that the misfortune of polio changed Roosevelt. By conquering adversity, he gained insight into the nature of suffering and found new sources of strength within, him, within himself. That is undoubtedly true, but it is, does not go far enough. Right. And then she talks about, as I mentioned in the last episode, his trips to rural Georgia, to go to Warm Springs, to, to look for a cure or relief to his polio, and where he's exposed to the brutal reality. He said um, he saw hardworking people who were ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished hard working yeah. people i think is the key there you know there is still this mythology i think particularly in american politics um where you you have this idea that people who are not doing well economically are lazy indigent uh right. they're not trying it's their fault. hard it's yes yeah where of, i mean you know shit man people who work in blue collar jobs or they're cleaners or they're teachers or they're You know, there are a million jobs out there where they work 10 times harder than a CEO does.
0: Um, Because they have to just to survive.
1: back-breaking hard work and, you know, they still end up not being able to pay the bills. But anyway, so he he saw this firsthand and obviously, you know, a lot of people, I think, from his background might have seen this firsthand and just dismissed it with some sort of ill-formed ideology about, as I just said, oh, well, they're obviously poor people who they they didn't work hard or their parents didn't work hard. It's their fault. But something about Roosevelt, maybe the polio, maybe just something in his personality, in his psyche, maybe he was a little bit more emotionally mature, um, decided, you know what, I, I, I can do something to help. These, and this isn't right, this isn't moral, this isn't ethical, that, we sh- that right. people should be living like this in the developed world.
0: Well, I was just thinking, just to look at that from a slightly different angle. You know, ninety-five out of ninety—excuse uh, me, ninety-five out of hundred people who grew up with all of his advantages would look at these people and go, "Well, that's social Darwinism." My forebears, you know, they worked hard and they saved and they and they and they uh, risked things and they gained because and of they, their ran and they ran
1: opium to China. They ran
0: opium, that which doesn't hurt, but that comes with certain risks too. But, um, but yeah, so my people made it, and obviously. You haven't made it, so that's just literally human nature deciding between the haves and have-nots. Because those who are smart enough, intelligent enough, hardworking enough, disciplined, whatever, but yeah, I think the vast majority of people would have who would have come from that lifestyle went. That's I'm I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. But like you said, for whatever reason, and we'll never know because he kept he played things so close to the vest that he just said no. You know this isn't right, and I'm going to do something about it. And he was. I mean, let's be honest. He's he's human, so he wanted to get into politics very early on. His his cousin Teddy was a big hero of it, so he literally wanted to be president. He wanted the position, he wanted the power, which which is completely human. But at the same time, he was actually going to do something with it. He wasn't just going to get in the history books. He literally had an agenda, and he was going to do something about it. And it's it's just still staggering someone from that economic strata to be so obsessed with the cares and the concerns of people on the exact, you know, the very bottom of the ladder.
1: I think when he was governor of New York during the Great Depression, he said, modern society acting through its government owes the definite obligation to prevent the starvation or the dire want of any of its fellow men and women who try to maintain themselves but cannot. Mm. Now, You know, this is interesting and we're going to, in an episode, in the next couple of episodes at some stage, we're going to start talking about the ideologies of socialism and capitalism. And, um, you know, this was a guy who obviously was a social conservative by instinct and upbringing, but really had a a quasi-socialist view anyway, a proto-socialist view of the responsibility that we all have to look after people in our society that have a genuine need and can't maintain themselves. Just this—that's the basis of socialism. The, the core of socialism right. is this idea that we all need to look after each other. If we have our own immediate um, Pavlovian needs taken care of—shelter, um, mm-hmm. food, you know, safety, warmth um then we we have uh, an ethical responsibility to try and help those around us that don't have those things taken care of that's that's the essence of socialism then you try and work out well how do you do that with an economic system and a political system and um this is the and i think you know one of the reasons perhaps why the relationship between the USA and the USSR you know uh uh Improved by leaps and bounds during FDR's presidency is at his core, he was sympathetic to the goals, right. if not the methodology, uh, uh, the, the, the Soviet methodology of socialism.
0: Yeah, because there's somewhere in one of the speeches early on, I can't find it now, but he says something about when I'm. Um, when um you can't do it on your own, when it's no fault of your own, but you've fallen through the cracks and you need help the government, when the government helps you, it's not a handout. It's a social duty. It's a social responsibility of the government. He literally, the view of the government could be helpful. It could be a force for a positive change. It doesn't necessarily have to be the government passed. Every time the government passes a law, you lose rights. It wasn't that, that negative uh, view of things, but it was literally, he saw it as the government's social duty to take care of its own people for reasons beyond their control that they are down and out. It's time for the government to step up.
1: Yeah and I you know I would go a step further and say it's it's not a handout it's a it's an investment in society. Exactly. You know yeah. what you want in a society and I think we've talked about this before on shows but the, the the bigger the population base that is healthy and educated the more productive that base is going to be it means there are more people that are going to be able to try and figure out a cure for cancer and a cure for a mm-hmm. solution to climate change and figure out you know, uh, how to de- develop better technologies across all fronts and systems and whatever. Yeah. So the the smaller the pool of healthy, educated people are in society, the less number of people there are to go and work on these big problems. The bigger that pool is, the better chances you're right. going to have that the, the kid that has a gift or has a high IQ or some particular artistic genius or some sort of insight is going to be able to... Uh, uh, realize those that potential that they have if they're poor and, and sick through no fault of their own then society mm-hmm. is missing out on what that kid is going to be able to grow up to become so it's an investment healthcare and education right. is an investment in everybody's success it's self interested to, to, to invest in healthcare and education that's at least my perspective
0: everyone yeah. benefits and, and just, from that right well, it, even on a more base, basic scale, the more people you have productive, intelligent, they can get jobs. They're working. They're paying taxes. They're buying things in stores. They're stimulating the economy. I mean, the economy feeds on itself. So the more people you have that are being being able to be productive are also contributing. So why would you not want to educate them, have them in reasonably good health so they don't have to go to doctors and run up a whole bunch of bills that they can't afford and Medicare doesn't want to cover? So it's just like you said, it's an investment. It's a win-win, but a lot of people don't see it that way. And who knows if if that view will ever Truly go away. Mm.
1: Anyway, back to our mate um, FDR. So um, I mentioned before that he could co opt anyone, bring them into his uh, little um, yeah. inner circle. One of the people that he did was a chap by the name of Joseph Kennedy. Um, <laughs> he brought Joseph Kennedy in to head the Securities and Exchange Commission. Because yeah, he's was, an honest bloke. When it was created. <laughs> Well, the Washington Post, a uh, at the time it takes a thief to catch a thief. Um, <laughs> for people who don't know much about Joe Kennedy, father, obviously, of both uh, John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and the other 72 Kennedy Edward. children. Um yeah,
0: the uh, Edward Kennedy. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: made a lot of money uh, running booze for Al Capone or with Al Capone. <laughs> he was involved in uh, a lot of illicit activities during Prohibition. Um, also involved with the the mob in many other ways, particularly, you know, in JFK's campaign, which we will get to one day in this show. We'll be able to yeah. talk about I, the mob's involvement in getting John F. Kennedy elected.
0: And the one thing, I, as far as uh, Mr. Kennedy goes, I just remember, for, and this was like 15 years ago, I read a biography, that there was this, the woman that he was just obsessed with. He just hounded her and hounded her and chased her and chased her and finally got her to marry him. It was a big deal for him. And then he just goes off and bangs everything else he can in sight. But he was just one of those people who was out to get as much as he possibly could, whether it was women, fortunes, positions of power, whatever. And I, I, I really do believe that FDR knew that he was picking a, a particular person because not only does FDR make that selection, but he's going to select a bunch of Southerners for other impromptu positions to help bring the South into to his, um, to his his fold because he's going to try and build a coalition of people who will work with him. He is purposefully picking people for specific reasons because he's trying to make this big tent. And again, it's all for this much larger agenda that he has going into the White House.
1: Yeah, he's not putting together his team because they agree with him politically or because they've done him <laughs> favours. He's like, who are the best minds that uh, I, can, I can bring in to solve the biggest problems that we have? You know, obviously, when I say the best minds, the best, most corrupt minds right. like uh, Joe Kennedy. Joe yeah. Kennedy wanted to become uh, president himself and he are. was ambassador to England at one mm-hmm. stage. But yep. And then he started saying shit like, you know, this Hitler guy. Fucking got it sorted. Love Hitler. Um, you know what? I reckon 10 years from now, Hitler will be running everything and that'll be a good thing for the human race. And then, uh, yeah. That was the end was, of Joe Kennedy's yeah, presidential Exactly. Yeah, he, he, was,
0: he was in London and he was like, look, y'all just need to give up, make a deal with Hitler. He's kicked everybody else's ass. Don't end up like them. Just cut your losses and run. And, and and you know, when, when Churchill gets into power, he's like, yeah, he's got to go. You got to send him back home and bring me someone else. And the other man that he sends... Is a hairy man. I'm trying to remember um, the right kind of person. But yeah, Kennedy was just like the glasses half empty and just he, he kept making the wrong statements in public and just pissing a lot of people off.
1: Oh, Hitler doesn't like the Jews, but let's face it, who does really?
0: <laughs> Never mind. I'm not even going to touch that one. <laughs> but it was true, absolutely true.
1: So that's, and then he wants his, uh, Eldest to become president, <clears throat> yeah. but he's, uh, Joe Jr. I think, and
0: then he yeah, it dies puts a lot of pressure on him. Yeah,
1: he dies in World War Two, and next up is
0: uh Teddy. Teddy, no, Johnny. Teddy was younger. Mm, what was it? God, I'm trying to remember. That's right. Sorry. Yeah, Jr., yeah, that's right. So he kept, he kept passing down the baton, and they keep getting killed, and. <laughs> Just stop already, Dad. Just fuck. You didn't make it. We're not going to make it. Just fuck Joe, off. Joe
1: gets anyway. killed. John gets yeah. killed. Bobby gets killed. Teddy kills some girl. A Chappaquiddick.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then at that point, you're like, I yeah. shouldn't have started all this. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Um. So, uh, yeah. Look. Um. You know, uh, one biographer I read said that his administrative style. This is FDR again. We're talking about was a legendary mixture of straightforward delegation flowchart mm-hmm. responsibility Machiavellian right. cunning and crafty mm-hmm. deception yeah that's so how you he wasn't this uh straight up straight shooter kind of guy necessarily he was a a political master he was uh Frank underwood um, right. as by the way uh was Harry Truman you know Harry Truman has this image apparently in the u.s of being down-home, straight-talking country boy who said what he thought and thought what he said. Not true at all. Even Mm. Truman's uh, peers thought he was a sneaky fucker. Um, (laughs) But we'll get to that when we get to Truman later on.
0: Sneaky fucker can wait.
1: But occasionally, I think as I mentioned in the earlier episode, uh, occasionally uh, FDR overreached. He made mistakes. Some Mm. were minor, some were catastrophic. In 1937... He made the decision to slash federal expenditure. Uh, That's all right. We've spent enough money on these programs now. We can pull back, which led to what was called the Roosevelt recession of 38-39. The economy took a dip again. But he had this conviction that whatever happened, everything would turn out all right, uh, which is also my personal philosophy on life. Take a method and try it. He said, if it fails, admit it and try another, but above all, try something.
0: That's what drives me crazy about politicians. No one wants to try anything, and heaven forbid anybody admit that something doesn't work. Is it because your enemies are just ready to pounce on you? But just own up. I mean, us Americans who have nine to five jobs and trying to survive every day, you know, you fuck up all the time. You admit it. You move on. They cannot admit anything anymore. Everything has to be perfect and they have to be flawless. That's just one of the many things, you know, that Americans hate. I guess everybody, but certainly Americans hate about their politicians. Just Mm. it's okay. It's okay to fuck up. Just be honest with us.
1: I'm going to read that quote again because I do think if something deserves to be written down and stuck up on your wall, mm-hmm. this is one of them. Take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it and try another. But above all, try something. Nice. And then under that you have do or do not. There is no try There's no tr- by Yoda.
0: <laughs> <laughs> same thing. Practically yeah. same thing.
1: No, like, you know, I, I, I admire this, uh, you know, uh, attitude towards life. It's certainly the way I try and live my life to the best of my ability. Just go and have a go. That's what I tell my kids. You know, yeah. they say, oh, your dad, you started this business and it failed and you started that business and it failed. I said, yeah, but, you know, so what? Yeah. It's <laughs> I don't care. I yeah. got out. I had an adventure. I tried something. It was oh. awesome. It failed. And you learned
0: something. Exactly.
1: It's awesome. I mean, failing at stuff is awesome. It's like... Learning to ride a bike or learning to roller skate. Yeah. You gotta fall down a shitload and skim right. your knees and hurt That's yourself. Right. It's
0: awesome. But eventually you're gonna to learn to ride and not fall anymore.
1: Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe. you'll keep falling over. Who cares? Right. But it's- <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're doing go shit, man. Yeah. It's like and you know, having a two-year-old like Fox is, is great because you see, you know, you just see them go through this naturally. He falls down and skins his knees every ten minutes during the day. <laughs> And I go, oh, are you okay? And he goes, yes, yes. And he gets up and he runs off. Like he cries for three seconds. Right. Uh, and I go, you okay? Okay. Yesterday I had him on the change table changing a nappy and we're out of wipes in the drawer of the change table. I turn around to get another thing of wipes off the shelf behind me. I hear yeah. boom on the floor. I turn around. He has rolled off the change table, which is about, I don't know, four foot high. Oh,
0: God. Fallen,
1: Fallen on the ground. But luckily he sort of must have fallen feet first, and he's just sort of crumpled, you know, feet, right. knees, boom, and he's sitting there. And I go, oh, my God, I pick him up, and he goes, sorry, Daddy, careful. <laughs> <laughs> be
0: careful.
1: That's I, right. No, I, I think it was more like, I should be more careful. Sorry, Daddy, <laughs> careful. <laughs> yeah. Because <where they're laughs> I'm always saying to him, careful, careful, when he's running around. But, you right. know, kids, kids naturally do this. They just fuck shit up, and they don't care. They just get back on the horse and they, they keep having to go until they figure it out or they don't. Just, but we get old, we get ossified, we lose we're that. scared. We, yeah. I remember oh. when, I, when I left Microsoft, you know, fuck, 12 years ago, and I was going to start my own business and do stuff. And I had some friends, some colleagues who were like, oh, man, I'd love to do what you're doing, but I just, you know, I just couldn't take the risk. And I'm God, like, what risk? The, risk? the risk isn't going and trying stuff, the risk is staying where you are, doing what you're doing, and dying. In yeah. you know dying doing something without having gone out there and had an adventure, get out there, have an event. They said, but what if it fails? Who the fuck cares if it fails? Who cares? <laughs> well, I might lose all my money, so what? <laughs> I might lose my house. I don't give a fuck. Get out there, have a go. I have lost all of my money several times, houses, yeah. everything, and wow. I it's fuck it's awesome. I'm like, this is fucking like that was that was a hoot. It's like going. <laughs> Like you can't go on, you can't go on. Uh, what do you call those? What are those? What are those rides that go up and down at the show in a car and like,
0: <laughs> car, carnival? Uh, no, what uh, are those
1: big things you go up and they come down really fast? And, oh and,
0: yeah, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this just dipper kind I'm, of thing. Right. No, just down. Is. You can't go on
1: those things and just want it to go up. Where's the fun if it just goes up <laughs> and up and up all the time? <laughs> Racing. Headlong at the speed of sound towards the ground is yeah. the most
0: fun part of yeah, one of those on things that I
1: can't think of what
0: they're called. Yeah. What are they called? We'll call them quick drops. How's that? No, what I, the, the, the thing? Know you know get the car, the, 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 yeah, show, can, the Disneyland, man, and it goes. Yeah, it slowly goes up and then just boom. Yeah, just what's drops. it called? Fucking we I both know.
1: can't not remember what these things are called. <laughs> it's your wig to remember shit. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't prepare for this. Anyway, <laughs> coming down is like skydiving, man. It's the fun. It's the fun part. Coming down right. with the wind whipping at your face. You don't know what's ahead of you. It's you like that. Seriously, kids. Like if you take away anything from this podcast, yes, it's get out there and just have a crack at stuff. You know. Do you think Ray and I became millionaires from
0: podcasting <laughs> because no. we were scared of failure? No, it was with the but, opium. Oh, sorry.
1: Caught up with somebody for dinner recently, and he said, uh,
0: how's the podcasting going? You making
1: millions yet? I said, no, oh, we're making singles. Singles out <laughs> of it, yeah. Making <laughs> dozens of dollars. Dozens. That's oh, doing all right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we get to. Yeah, that's a FDR's motto. I like it. If it fails, yeah. admit it and try another. Above all, try something. But here are some right. of the things that did not exist before FDR. Mm-hmm. Social security. Unemployment mm-hmm. compensation. By the way, I should say in the United States. These things existed right. in other places, right. not in the United States. Unemployment compensation. Stock market regulation. Mm-hmm. Federal guarantees of bank deposits. Wow. Wages and hours legislation. Labor's right to bargain collectively. Agricultural price supports. Rural electrification. <laughs> yeah. None of these things existed in the United States before FDR. Some, of the, a lot of these things we take for granted today. Yeah, he introduced and did it in a hurry as
0: well yeah. to try. One hundred and five days, fifteen wow. pieces of legislation. The first New Deal, just dealing with stuff the banking industry, trying to employ people, public works. Like you said, the farms and there, and people had been growing so much food that it wasn't worth anything. So he was. They were paying farmers not to grow too much of certain things, and they were just pumping checks out to the states, out to the farmers, out to the people, because people, like I said earlier, were being kicked out of their homes and they can't afford their mortgage or their rent. He was getting money out to where it needed to go to do some good as fast as he possibly could, and all of the major decisions were made by him. It wasn't done by committee. He gathered information, but he made the decision himself, which, you know, truly the buck stopped with him.
1: Which kind of why it shits me to tears when people like Obama get elected in two thousand and eight and takes power and they're like and he hasn't done anything in his first term and people are like well you know don't want to rush it uh, you are- know and he's he's trying to you know Guantanamo Bay is still open and you know the fucking yeah. banks still haven't been broken up and you know people are like well you know he's you don't want to get yeah. stuff done he's too quickly up. yeah he yeah. He, uh, you know he's trying to get bipartisan support. That's he's he doesn't want to just do it. Yeah, he just wants happen. everyone to be happy and for them all to sing "Kumbaya" and dance around a fucking maypole. But this, you know, it's like you know what? FDR did it. Just kick right down in. doors, take fucking kicking asses and taking names. Yeah. Um, and of course, as commander in chief, probably he was better prepared than any president. Uh, before him, save maybe Washington and Grant right. in terms of having military experience because he'd been uh, the number two man in the Navy for eight years under Wilson.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just think it's amazing. I mean, when, when he came to power in 1933, the American, the United States Armed Forces was truly a third-rate power. And we don't need to go into the detail, but after World War One, America was so anti-military that Men in, in the service, when they would go out, um, nothing to do with their jobs, they were in, encouraged not to wear their uniform. Nobody wanted to see their uniform. Budgets were being cut. Everything was being cut back. So he knew right away one of the really good ways to help try to stimulate things was to uh, to work on the military as well because this is obviously way before Hitler and stuff like that. So literally he that was one of the many things he had to work on because America – probably had more cops than we did um, soldiers – and which is literally a staggering thing when you consider the size of the country and what we had right after World War I and all the stuff we're going to get into later. But that was just another opportunity for him to expand, hopefully, and stimulate the economy of the United States through its military.
1: Mm. Well, we'll talk a lot about how that ended up for good, yeah. bad or indifferent. Right. You know, he can be criticized on a number of issues. Um, You know, he kind of ignored racial segregation um, when Germany was trying to get rid of the Jews. A lot of people don't know this, I think. But, uh, you know, before Hitler sent the Jews to the gas chambers, uh, had them all in concentration camps. And he was like reaching out to both the USA and the UK and Australia and Mm -hmm. saying, hey, you want my Jews? I don't want the Jews. You want want to take the Jews? And
0: uh, we,
1: all, we all said, mm, no. Thank no. you, but
0: no thank you. We don't, Probably not we that don't,
1: nice. We don't want them. Your problem, not our problem. Yeah. Which is yeah. why the gas chambers were called the final solution. The first solution was send them to other countries. And when the other countries didn't want them, yeah. uh, Hitler was like, well. I'm not going to keep them. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, you know, he was fairly cavalier about civil liberties. We'll talk a little bit about his treatment of the Japanese later on. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he had an opportunity during, you know, sort of the 1940, 1941 to have a a summit with the Japanese Prime Minister, Uh, you know, possibly could have uh, kept America out of the Pacific War, at least if they'd sat down and done a deal with Japan. Whether or not he wanted the U.S. to get into a war, again, is something we'll explore later on. I'm right. not suggesting that he knew about the Pearl Harbor attacks in advance. Right. Um, there's, there's but there no was evidence. racism
0: there, yeah. Well, but not yeah. even
1: racism, but economic issues that oh, right, we'll right. Yeah, we yeah. talk about as we get to that. I mean, a lot of this is going to end up being a discussion about economics in future episodes. Yeah. Um... Anyway, uh, you know, back to Roosevelt. So, um, as you say, the United States had a third-rate military power before World War II. But he also did things like he had children's hour every evening <laughs> where he would uh, invite guests over. This is while president. Yeah. He'd mix martinis. Yeah. They'd have poker not for, games. Not for the kids. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, they would go out on the presidential yacht, the Potomac. Uh, Potomac. Sorry, Potomac. Potomac, yep. yep. Um, you know, he was very sort of, uh, social high society, you know, even again, he's president, he's dealing with all of this shit with, um, the depression, but he's still having a good time with his high society friends.
0: Yeah. That was the one thing that I tried to drill down into, but, um, and just, just real quick, whatever, but because of the way he was raised and obviously becoming from the affluent lifestyle that he had and his mother disciplined him. She had an exact schedule with him. She loved him. She took care of him, but she also <clears throat> didn't let him get away with murder. I mean, he grew up, Thinking that everything was going to be okay, because until the polio came, nothing ever bad had ever happened to him. Um, he had mistresses. He he believed in some form of the uh, of a deity. You know, they were a very religious family. He went to church and he was involved in all that. But he had this absolute unshakable, aristocratic, if you will, belief that everything was going to be okay, especially, like you were saying with the quote, as long as you try to make it okay, okay as long as you try to do something. So the Amer- America cannot, in some ways, get any worse than it is economically. But he's like, it's going to be okay. We're going to try things, and if it doesn't work, we're going to move on. But it's going to be okay. Be of good cheer, because one of the things, when he was trying to get over the infantile paralysis, he insisted upon a good cheer attitude. If you didn't have that around him, you weren't invited back because he was going to be positive that he was going to be okay one day, or at least be much better than he was. And he absolutely insisted on that from everybody around him. And it just, it became infectious, but that, and I, and I, and I'm not even going to pretend to understand that type of mentality. And like you, like you were saying that you have, but, That is just who he was. It was going to be okay. So even though he works his ass off in the White House, he does not stop having fun. He's a very social person. He, Like you said, he mixed the drinks himself for everybody. He's out on his yacht. He is having fun. He is literally living life as much as he possibly can during his waking hours. And from everything I could tell, he absolutely loved being the president. He loved everything about it. He loved the power, the the position, the ability to, to make a difference and help people. But he is living life, large on his terms and he's enjoying every single moment of it
1: yeah this um attitude of optimism um as you know I'm, i i have a similar view mine isn't based on religion it's based on science and physics or millions but, of dollars but, yeah, yeah, yeah it's not based <laughs> on that that's for sure um <laughs> But this, you know, everything that happens, you know, uh, is what has to happen. Uh, According to my philosophy, it's because everything is made of atoms and atoms obey the laws of physics. So, therefore, everything that atoms is a result of the laws of physics. So therefore, you might as well just fucking accept it as the laws of physics playing out and just go, fuck, great, let's go. Let's see what happens. Let's go for a ride. He was very religious, went to church his entire life. And um, Eleanor, not so much. And I did read in one of the biographies, Eleanor said to him once something like, what have you really ever learned of value by going to church? And he he said something like, yeah, I find it's best not to think about it too hard.
0: Yeah, he He also said that to his mother. He's like, I don't think about it too much. And that's one of the reasons or whatever benefits of my belief. I put it in his hands. I don't think about it. I don't dwell down into it. I don't ask questions. I just go along and get out of it what I need, which is pretty much in a lot of ways sums up his philosophy, getting what he needs from things and then just getting on with his life.
1: Speaking of getting what he needs, particularly in the <laughs> pussy department, let's talk about his affairs. <laughs>
0: God. Okay, that was a gentle segue, but yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So, so he yeah, was yeah. he was
1: he was a ladies' man even yeah. after he was struck down with polio. But you know, see there were two major uh, affairs that he had during his marriage to Eleanor. Um, The first was with a woman called Lucy Mercer. Mm -hmm. Um, It started probably around about 1916. She was Eleanor's social secretary when Franklin
0: met her. You don't do that. Oh, you work for my wife. Oh, you work for Mm. my wife. Good good to meet you. Mm -hmm. Hope to see you around. One um, observer said-
1: One guy who knew Lucy Mercer said every man who knew her fell in love with her.
0: Mm, okay. I've seen a photo
1: of her; didn't look that special, yeah. to me But no, it wasn't uh, was taken. It was
0: a different time. It was, different it was time. yes, different standards. Yeah, she liked yeah. big hats. Yeah, <laughs> well, she came to I the saw. right place. He had some hats. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, uh, he met her in 1914. Um, they are believed to have begun their affair in mid-1916. He was 34. She was 25, which is the same age it? gap between Chrissy and myself. So That's hey, the
0: secret to happiness, everybody. What can right I tell there?
1: you? That is the secret to happiness. Yeah. <laughs> You're only as old as the woman you feel, said Groucho Marx. And uh, FDR and I took that lesson to yes.
0: heart. You have a lot in common.
1: By the summer of 1917, the two had become an item of Washington gossip, uh, but it didn't get talked about in the press. Um, right. Eleanor didn't find out about it until 1918. I think she discovered yeah. uh, letters that they'd been bets. writing to each other. Mm. You know, but the here's Burn the thing: those. the affair wasn't made public until right. 1966. Wow! Don't you yeah. bet? Don't you wish, Bill Clinton? Don't you bet Bill Clinton wishes he'd been president during the, yeah. those good old years? By the way, the can I just say, can I ask you the question as an American? Yeah. How yeah. the fuck does Bill Clinton have any fucking political credibility? He's going on the campaign trail for Hillary. Right. I've been re watching, you know, the whole Monica Lewinsky era videos of him saying, I did not have a sexual relationship with that woman. And then right. a couple of weeks later, okay. So okay. I fucked her and she gave me a blowjob. Really? But other than that... Is that sex? Happened. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, what's Was your definition good? of sex? Yeah. <laughs> How does this guy have yeah. any credibility? What is it about your society where this guy... Yeah. And look, I don't care who he fucked. I mean, yeah. and, uh, no, whether or You're not he fucked it. her in the Oval Office. No, I don't give a shit. Doctor where? But oh, the Oval the, Office. <laughs> the, po- <laughs> the point is that he yeah. ruined good cigars. No, the point is... Yeah. that he yeah. lied to the American people about it, you know, and, and you know, yeah. people who defend it, like Markham, would defend him to his dying breath. And he's yeah. like, "Well, you know, uh, you know, and you know, w- you know, who wouldn't lie about getting caught out in an affair? Sure, right. I've been caught out having affairs in previous <coughs> marriages. I want to point out, and I've and I lied about it until I couldn't lie about it anymore. I still but still, am.
0: but yeah."
1: Yeah. By the way, Chrissy, my lovely wife, love, yeah. you know, Chrissy listens to this show. hasn't listened oh. to any of the other shows. Oh, really? Decided for some reason she's listening to the Cold War show, and the first <laughs> thing she said to me is, "Ray, Ray really doesn't talk respectfully about Heather on the show. <laughs> He's I like." Don't- He's disrespectful. Like, and i was just like, What? No. no, like, no. really no, he Tell
0: her keep her damn mouth shut. Oh, Chris, exactly. you're probably listening to this right now. Keep your damn mouth shut. Yeah, tell her yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so she's been writing well,
1: snarky comments on our know. Facebook posts now. That, I don't know, <laughs> you know. No,
0: anyway. I, I is Heather's ass every day, just out of general principle. So yes, anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bit of bit of ass licking action. <laughs> Tongue the hole. Uh <clears throat> So anyway, getting back to um, yes. you know, the fact is that yes, men lie about cheating on their spouses, or, and I don't even like the term "cheating" about fucking around. But right. uh, but he's the president who lied to the American people about it. And the point is, if he was prepared to lie about that to save his ass to the American mm-hmm. people, I don't care that he lied to Hillary. He lied to the people. If you're the president sitting in the Oval Office and you get caught out lying to the people about one thing, how do we know what else you've been lying about? Is the point. You have zero credibility and zero integrity. And I'm sorry, you're the fucking president. Uh, there's yeah. a s- different standard that you have to live up to. He was obviously right. living up to the Nixon standard, not, <laughs> Nailed the, it. Yeah, yeah. not well, the standard you would hope for. And yet, and here he is now. Getting up and being applauded at Democratic conventions and and yeah. giving speeches on behalf of his wife. I want somebody to go. Oh, you support Hillary for president? What about Monica? Or What about Linda yeah. Tripp? What about all these other like, you know? You, yeah. you, you, I, what do you think about their chances for president? You like you preferred <laughs> them over Hillary twenty years ago? Anyway. Yeah.
0: Well, Stop let me. A, I'm going on a rant without without defending him because I'm not going to defend him. But I will. I'll give you. I'll give you my impression. Um, at the time when it was going on, a lot of people were like, well, that's sex and it's between him and her. And he's not lying about something like taking us to war. It's about sex. And so, but at the point, at that point, because Bill Clinton has a very nice personality, he's a very charming person. People liked him. They didn't know him. Obviously, you know, he was packaging himself like everybody else does, but they liked the package. They liked, they liked him as a person as they perceived him. So even though he did this, yes, he took a hit and the Republicans came after him on moral grounds, but it just wasn't sticking. The As far as I remember, the economy was doing pretty good. And that, of course, as Americans, that's what we care about. But it just, it wasn't going to go anywhere. It wasn't going to get any traction. It wasn't going to stick. And now, even though he's talking for his wife, I think he's the older safe guy. Yeah, he might want to bang your 16-year-old daughter, but his, his age, he probably can't. He might just grope her. But But he still has, almost like Pompey the Great, there's a little bit of bad boy rock star element to him. He's still a very popular politician among the Democrats. And so he can get away with that. But that's just one of the many, many advantages of being or being perceived to be a charming, likable person.
1: If I go to interview Hillary Clinton, the first question I ask (laughs) is, (laughs) so when your husband was president, yeah. Um, he blatantly lied to the American people. Um, you know, would you lie to the American people about who you've been fucking in the Oval Office? Yeah. Uh, anyway. Back yeah. to FDR. Yeah, so 50 years uh, before his affair with Lucy Mercer became public, yeah. um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was Teddy's daughter and Eleanor's cousin, encouraged the affair with Lucy, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> invited the two to dinner.
0: Yes, come on over. And she you was, can
1: quote, my place. She was quoted as saying, Franklin deserves a good time. He's married to Eleanor. (laughs) Oh! Ah,
0: Snap! Oh, bitch! Uncalled. Uncalled. Yeah, which is probably true. But at that point, I mean, who knows how close their marriage was. But at that point, you know, because they could have divorced. We'll get into that in a second. But at that point, they are going to live separate lives. And for Eleanor, good for her because I have four daughters. She literally is like, okay, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to have my own life. I'm going to have my own agenda. And I'm going to do things and issues that I want to work on. At that moment, she truly does become her own person. A lesbian. Um, No, (laughs) no.
1: I didn't look into this, but I have looked into this before. I mean, there, there have always been rumours that she was a lesbian. She had very close uh, girlfriends. Um, yeah. to, to best of my memory, the last time I looked into this was quite a few years ago, but there's no, I think when I watched the uh, Bill Murray movie where he played FDR, there's no direct evidence that right. she was a lesbian. Right. The letters were her and the other uh, some woman professing love for each other, uh, whether it was yeah. purely platonic or it was, you know, a, a love that... Didn't turn into a sexual relationship, or yeah. they actually were lesbians or bisexual. I don't think there's direct evidence for it, but it was certainly there've been rumours around that. But um, anyway, right.
0: good, good, good for her. Well, maybe. yeah, yeah. So, so she I finds like out it about it this. See,
1: why shouldn't she? I no. don't want anyone to.
0: No. No.
1: Good probiotics too. I read a big article the other day. I <laughs> really. With yeah, very good Ooh. for you. A lot of probiotics, a lot of lot of good healthy bacteria in the pussy area. Okay. Uh, apparently, okay. good for your health. Eat
0: pussy every day. Okay. It's a new campaign. I am um, going to we're going to come put this with- on pause. I'll be back in about twenty minutes. Okay. No, I'm just yeah. joking. Um, no. So, so she finds out about the the affair. He promises to not see her anymore. Call it off. And it's literally time. Okay, what do we do? Because we're still you know relatively young. Do we divorce? Do we go our separate ways? Franklin pretty much was like yeah i'm i'm okay with divorcing your ass um so he literally wanted to to get out of the marriage he was going to be financially okay anyway um because of his family money but his mother sarah who strong influence on his life, if not the strongest outside of Franklin himself, would not hear of it. She knew it would ruin his career and nothing made FDR happier besides banging Lucy uh, than politics about the idea of being in politics. So she nixed that. So they're going to stay together, but they are going to have truly separate lives from now on, which, you know, good for her because why should she be the victim all the time? And she does some amazing things in her own right uh, because she's going to choose to live her own life
1: including maybe eating pussy. Maybe. Um, so we, Good for we, her. Yeah. So they stay together yeah. for political uh, reasons, which pretty much sounds again like the Clintons, right? I mean, does anyone uh, yeah. really think Bill gives a shit about Hillary or vice versa?
0: No, they're a power couple. That's, that's their thing. She yeah. wants to be president so bad she can taste it. The yeah. the office, not the vagina.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, maybe. No. I no.
0: don't
1: know. No. Anyway. Anyway. Um, anyway. Uh, Yeah, Franklin promised not to see Lucy Mercer again, but he did. Yeah. Um, You know, she attended each of his inaugurals. Uh, She turned up in a closed White House limousine provided by the Secret Service. Nice. Um, Met with him often during the 1940s and was with him when he died at Warm Springs in early 1945. Damn. Damn. But yeah. they, they, they didn't have an ongoing affair. The woman he did have an ongoing affair with, quite probably, right. was Missy LeHand. Mm-hmm. Um, Missy Marguerite LeHand, um, she was 23 years old when she joined his team during his vice presidential campaign in 1920, so only two years after he stopped having an affair with right. Lucy. And she was with him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, She was his personal secretary. She referred to him as FD. That's Um, right. No one else was allowed. Which apparently stood for fuck daddy. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Now you know.
0: Now you know.
1: Yeah, like, as far as I'm aware, there's no... Uh, again, evidence that they had a sexual relationship. Scholars uh, sort of divided on it, although everyone sort of agrees that she deeply loved him and that right. he probably loved her as well. Um, yeah. Eleanor had no objection to uh, her spending time with him. Neither did Sarah. Um, all of their friends took it in stride. She went with him everywhere. She was sort mm. of his, at least his, you know, closest companion if right. not his sexual partner, And you might wonder, well, he had polio. He, he was in a wheelchair. Could he get it up? Apparently, yes. Uh, got it up do- and
0: got it in. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Surprisingly enough, uh, no one really ever asked him. It's not on record. Right. Uh, I think Stalin wanted to ask it one stage. Yeah. Like, Mr. President.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I need someone to translate this question for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you do, you know, uh, buds yeah. and bees... With Missy, boom, boom. do you boom-boom do 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 Missy? Uh,
1: mm. <laughs> How you say in English, boom-boom. Um, although other people with polio, um, right. you know, it affects different parts. You know, polio yeah. affects the muscles of the legs and potentially the arms. Uh, it doesn't affect your ability to get a boner. Right. So um, FDR quite possibly could have, yeah. but um, probably couldn't do missionary position. Right. Um, you know, she would have had to climb up. On she she
0: had to do all the work. Typical man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cow cowgirl.
1: Missy. Um, she so who's was. The- she was. Her surname was Lahand, which uh, which <laughs> is apropos. He would be like, hey Lahand, how about a bit of the old Lahand if you know what I mean? Hey, hey. She goes, I've been hearing that one for forty <laughs> years, FD. Like seriously, change it up, change yeah. it up. The name's Fuck Daddy, not Handjob Daddy. Like,
0: <laughs> who's, the, uh, who's the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm? What's his name? Which guy? David. Which one? Larry Barry David. David. Yeah. yeah, but when he was like talking about the Hodgkins or whatever, uh, so, so he would say he got the good kind of polio, you know, the <laughs> one where you get to keep your penis. Penis? He, sorry, yeah. <laughs> now, here's hey, how, thing. how
1: long have we been recording for? I had to stop mine halfway through. 50, what is your recording? 54 say? 54 oh, minutes. Oh, we're still not done with FDR. Fuck, no. I've still got a third of my notes left
0: to go. Yeah. What are we doing? Uh, yeah, well, see, here's my thing, and not to jump too far ahead, but yeah. when he's done his
1: race thing, get at your get out sh- your. Magazine There's, glasses. No,
0: that hurts my feelings. Um, he leaves her some money. So, what oh, does that see? Yeah. Yeah. So, what does that say? Or does it help at all shed light on? Not just some money. He left oh, her yeah.
1: one half of his estate.
0: Yeah. For her re- commitment. Yeah.
1: In his will, but she died but he- before he did.
0: Yeah, and here's the part we have to point out. I mean, she was truly his right-hand lady. She was his administrative assistant. She was
1: his right-hand. Right, right,
0: left, and the middle. Right-hand. I mean, they did a ton of work together. She knew everything he was doing. She she handled all the paperwork. So she wasn't just a fuck buddy or whatever. She truly was involved working hard with him, and he worked some crazy hours. So let's let's not gloss over that. She truly was an administrative helper who was able to take all of his ideas and, you know, focus it into proper paperwork. So she did a lot of good work.
1: Yeah, but she died a year before he did. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, when you see him looking sad at Yalta in those photos, it's not because he's sick. It's because his, his, she was the love, of his, the love of his life. Yeah. Really, yeah. She died yeah. just before yeah. he did, which must have been yeah. sad. <clears throat> I mean, he was yeah. sick too. And he had a lot, of, right. lot, on, lot on his plate, but... You know, it's worth keeping in mind this that um, you know the love of his life had just died before, just before he goes to York. Um, and then, of course, the other major woman was Sarah that we talked about before. Now, I want to say, uh, I, I want to get back to talking about the economics. As I said at the beginning of our FDR episodes, the, the key takeaway from a lot of this is a bit about him and and his outlook towards the world, because this plays a big role in in uh, what happens with the Grand Alliance, but. Also, how fucked America was at the time. I want to get back to talking about the, you know, the the, the problems that America had when FDR became president. Mm-hmm. Um, he repealed prohibition, by the way, in mm-hmm. 1933, one of the first things that he did when he became president, which helped his uh, popular
0: support, no doubt. Yeah, have a drink. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I've got some
1: interesting numbers here on government expenditure. So in... The average government spending as a percentage of GDP in the Hoover administration, so from 29 Mm -hmm. to 32, was 12%. Mm. 12% of GDP, average government spending. Um, The average government spending in the last five years of Roosevelt, well, actually, we'll take it in Roosevelt's New Deal years, 33 to 39, that rose to 15.4%. Wow. Wow. And in the war years of the Roosevelt administration, went up to thirty five point three percent. Damn, that's how much money uh, they started spending. So in nineteen twenty nine, the Hoover administration's budget was nine point four billion. In nineteen forty four, uh, it was one hundred and five point three billion, which is eleven times nineteen twenty nine levels of spending. So, of course, that was to try and arrest the decline of the economy, but also to gear up for World War II.
0: Yeah. Oh, and the other thing out of his um, new deal for the first 100 days, he also took America off the gold standard. So uh, all the money they printed did not have to be backed by gold, which means they could print a heck of a lot more money, and he certainly did to send it out to the people as fast as he possibly could.
1: Mm. Now, uh, it didn't all go smoothly. There was this... um, Bipartisan conservative coalition that formed in 1937 to prevent him from packing the Supreme Court um, and blocked almost all of his proposals for major legislation except the minimum wage, which did pass. Yay. Uh, See, there was no minimum wage before that. People could pay uh, people whatever the fuck they wanted. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it's still amazing to those of us that live in the civilised world that America's minimum wage is what, like, Not even fifteen.
0: What is it? Twelve no, se- dollars? No, no, no. Seven something. I think Fuck is the federal. May. Because I heard Ted Cruz the other day um, talk about uh, we either don't need one or it's too high or we need to be able to give our employers more options. I mean, how I many people? People that can't afford cars, they have to ride the, the bus, and they're working, they're busting their ass, and, they, and by the time you take taxes out, they're f- truly fucked. And people want, and I think Donald Trump as well said. Minimum wage is too high, so fuck these people looking out for their rich friends. I mean, just fuck them.
1: In Australia, at the moment, the national minimum wage is $16.87 per hour.
0: Damn. You guys,
1: you're a fucking backwards country in so many ways. I mean, look, I give you props for gay marriage. I give you props for marijuana legalization, decriminalization in certain states. Australia is nowhere near closer. Chrissy said to me last, the Queensland government, the state where I live, Queensland, has just decided they're going to make harsher punishments for possession of marijuana. Harsher. Just to prove there were a bunch of red net backward fucks. We're going to make it harsher. (laughs) Fuck what the rest of the world is doing. We're going to go backwards.
0: I think I read something today that Canada is considering legalizing. So who who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I'm just waiting for it to come to Virginia, <clears throat> oh, so I can have I take two months off and do what I got to do. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you're, yeah, you know, you're so fucking useless on these shows as it is. What are you going to be like when you're stoned?
0: Slightly slower and less contributing,
1: <laughs> but you'll giggle more.
0: So you know, I will giggle. That. Yeah, that's my that's my super strength, my, Yeah, you already that's sound stoned on
1: your things. World War II show. My impersonation of Ray's World War II show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome back to the World War II podcast. My name is Ray Harris. <laughs> when it's called Hitler
0: dramatic pauses.
1: Gas the Jews. They all died.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a solemn subject. I saw somebody.
1: I, I saw somebody write on your Facebook page the other day that uh, you shine eat. on that show when you're not. Constantly interrupted by your Australian pain in the ass. Uh, that was me,
0: actually. Something. I wrote that under <laughs> that was me. That was hey, me. I,
1: I, I felt proud for you there, buddy. <laughs> Somebody gave you some props. Good on Thank you, buddy. You.
0: Thank you. I, I spend so much time patting myself on the back. I really don't need anyone else, mm. but it's always welcome when it happens.
1: I that show is your attempt to, become an, uh, to get hired by NPR, isn't it? It's your pretty NPR much, audition tape.
0: It's, it's my audition tape. It's my 167 mm. show audition for NPR. God, it's hot in my office.
1: Uh, okay, so um, some other stuff. I we, we, we can't do a third episode. We've got to crash through this. What, right. Some of the stuff I want to point out is that the phrase Judeo-Christian first became popular in the late 30s mm. um, because Roosevelt used it. Um, He was trying to mobilize Americans against the Nazis, and the Nazis were anti-Semitic, obviously. So the term Judeo-Christian really first was used in this era to popularize this view, to to counterpoint them. Before that, they were just Christian. Right? Americans thought of themselves as Christian, but to sort of position themselves as against anti-Semitism, although we have to point out that most Americans were anti-Semitic. Yeah. They he started to popularize the idea of judeo-christian values to say, you know, mm. what, yeah, that you know, we don't we, we, look, we don't like the well, Jews,
0: no, but we don't necessarily together against the Nazis. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, he did uh, repeatedly mention religion in his public addresses which set him apart from his predecessors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your presidents before FDR didn't talk about God and religion a lot, so we kind of have him to thank in some part for the introduction of religion into political speeches in the United States. Thanks, FDR. You know, kind of got worse under Eisenhower um, Mm -hmm. and Nixon, funnily enough, but, um, you know, it started with FDR. Yeah. but he also you know, moved beyond his own religion where he was a Protestant mm-hmm. and embraced Jews and Catholics. He said in one radio address in 1936, we who have faith cannot afford to fall out among ourselves. Religion in wide areas of the earth has been confronted with irreligion. You and I must reach across the lines between our creeds, clasp hands, and make common cause. That's
0: right. Very pra- pragmatic person. Ir- irreligion.
1: He would be talking about Soviets. Uh, one of the the foundational principles of uh, Marxism is the abo- abolition of religion because they see religion for what it primarily is, which is just another way to scam people out of their money, and right. uh, 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 it's it's a political tool and they uh, and a tool for the wealthy elite. As religion has been throughout most of Western history, they opium, wanted to
0: get, opium for the
1: masses. Yeah, that's right. They mm-hmm. wanted to get rid of religion. Um, people may think that there's still some people I come across that think the Nazis were atheists. They weren't. They were a Christian party. Um, I cannot stress that enough. It was in the foundational principles of the Nazi mm-hmm. party that they were a Christian party. Hitler, like Stalin, had uh, been a Altar boy, he studied. He wanted to go to seminary and become a priest, didn't he? One I hope stage. he was
0: raped. Yes, yes, that's true. That's
1: true. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> um. But uh, you know, that said, Hitler didn't like the churches as they no, stood. He thought not the they, Catholic
0: Church knew. No,
1: no, no he, he, he went up against the churches as they stood, but he still believed, and in all of his speeches he talks about Jesus, he's a Christian. Christians, yeah. I, when I have this debate with Christians, I'll say, but he wasn't a real Christian. Like, oh, <laughs> you get to decide what a real Christian is. I see. <laughs> oh, what, right. like those popes that launched the Crusades, Well, they weren't real Christians. Oh, I see. Well, when you find a real out, Christian, fucking get back me to me.
0: <laughs> Show me the the guys that address. did the
1: deal with Constantine and wiped out all of the Christian, the Jesus cults that didn't agree with their version of the well, they weren't real. They cr- were Christians. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right now, you know the truth. Yeah, thank yeah. you for helping me see that. <clears throat> um, so um, you know, uh, we talk more about. Um, uh, when the war began, uh, obviously, unemployment effectively ended. Millions, tens of millions of mm-hmm. Americans were caught up in getting ready for the war. Um, the Conservatives in Congress repealed two of the major relief programs that Roosevelt had introduced, the WPA, which was the Works right. Progress Administration, I think. Harry Hopkins ran that. I read, yeah. a, I read a book on Harry Hopkins like 20 years like, ago on the he was amazing. He was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Big fan of Harry Hopkins. Yes. He was the Agrippa of exactly. the of Roosevelt's administration, exactly. wasn't he?
0: Yeah. Yes. He, he shit didn't done? have his torso, but yeah, he, got, he was awesome.
1: <laughs> you want shit done? Give it to Harry Hopkins, man. That's right. And and the CCC, uh, whatever that stood for, was also um, uh, repealed by Congress. Yeah, they didn't need it anymore, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So after World War II uh, was sort of looming in 1938, there was this Japanese invasion of China. Nazi Germany was starting to look more and more aggressive. Roosevelt gave strong diplomatic support and financial support to China and the United Kingdom while the U.S. officially remained neutral. Mm -hmm. But, by the way, you can't be neutral uh, when you're giving money to one side. You know, (laughs) there's this
0: well he's he rigged it, he rigged it, so he said anybody who wants to come and buy from us can, but he rigged it so the Germans could not, so yeah, totally on the allies side, trying to help the the Chinese as well, who actually enjoyed a lot of popularity in America for a while, so he was definitely choosing sides and putting his money where his mouth was
1: and this idea that the Japanese attack um on Pearl Harbor on december seventh nineteen forty one was, um, you know, an act of aggression Not exactly true I mean, what people tend not to know Is that America had already, again Taken sides against the Japanese They had cut mm. off They weren't selling them fuel Which the Japanese no, I, needed They were making economic sanction decisions yeah. Which is taking a position And, yeah. that you know, uh, Roosevelt had just moved Pretty much the entire fucking US Navy To Hawaii <laughs> To obviously gearing up to make a play uh, for their economic interests in the Pacific. Yeah. And, you know, the Japanese decided to, to strike first, which is apparently okay when Bush does it in Iraq, but not right. okay when the Japanese do it. No, in that's, yeah. By the way, Hawaii, not fucking America, uh, <laughs> 100 years before that. <laughs> like, oh, hold on. We're, <laughs> we're going to go and uh, annex. This little mm-hmm. island in the Pacific, but how dare you bomb us of this island that we took military took. control? Yeah. Fuck, you know. Hypocrisy Central. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> Yes, um, Lend Lease. He implements Lend Lease and is providing support to Britain and China. Mm-hmm. Um, 1941.
0: Because they couldn't afford to pay anymore,
1: yeah. Yeah, they were out of money. So he's like, you know, okay, well, you can – Borrow some of our shit and, you know, we'll, right. we'll give it give it back or pay later. for it later. Yeah. later. Yeah. Um, but he was taking sides. Uh, America had taken sides in World War II well before they officially entered mm-hmm. the war at a military level. They were fighting it economically, if not militarily. Pearl Harbor happens uh, the next day, I think. Uh, they declare war. The U.S. declares war on Japan. A few days later on Germany. -hmm. And that's when he gets into it. Yes. Um, And of course, at this stage, um, Hitler had already started Barbarossa, uh, his attacks on Stalin, which we'll talk a little bit about more in upcoming episodes. But uh, Mm -hmm. Roosevelt, you know, forms the this this alliance starts to form between Churchill, Stalin, Chiang Kai Shek, who is the nationalist leader of the Chinese. Right. And themselves.
0: Yep. And he knew what he was doing. I mean, he was literally trying to... Uh to steer his country towards a war footing, obviously on the Allied side. Uh, it, and again, it wasn't so much um, he wanted it for this for some kind of personal military glory, maybe like Caesar Alexander would have done. He thought it was the right thing to do. Obviously, the Nazis were not being good people, were not being good neighbors, and they needed to be stopped. And he felt that way. But as you can imagine, the Americans, between what they had to do in World War I and the economy tanking, there was no way America wanted anything to do with this. And so he, uh, again, FDR, a politician's politician, bided his time and he nudged. He never pushed. He always pulled and he slowly got the American people around to his side. And by the time Pearl Harbor comes, uh, the American people are in a much different frame of mind than they were, say, 10 years ago or whatever, In 1933. He knew what he was doing. He just had to he couldn't lead the people any faster than they were being willing, to let you know, led to go. So he was, he knew what he was doing. It was all planned out by him.
1: And during this period, he is uh, very influential in the creation of things like the United Nations, the Bretton Woods program, and of course, the development of the world's first nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. which we will talk about in great detail in a future episode. But Einstein basically uh, uh, was used to convince Roosevelt that uh, the Germans were building or working on uh, nuclear weapons and that America needed to as well, which, again, we will talk about in future episodes. During the war, unemployment dropped from 25% down to 2%. Damn. Damn. Um, and, of course, that was a lesson that America never forgot. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, no, I'm dead serious, too. We, yeah, we, we, yeah. Will, we will talk about this in great detail in, in upcoming episodes, the economic impact uh, of World War II in terms of pulling America out of the shit that we mentioned at the beginning. And, of course, right. when they came out of World War II, they were like, well, fuck, that was good for the economy. Yeah. Let's not uh, let's not forget this lesson. War yeah. is good for the economy.
0: Well, not only that, but the point that you made either on ep- pretty previous episodes. I think it was by the time World War II is over with. Not only is everybody's countries ruined their infrastructure, their cities, their economies, their labor force. America has suffered relatively much fewer casualties than everybody else. Our economy is humming. Who would want that to possibly change? You know, people are willing to do whatever they can to keep the status quo if the status quo is working for them, and that's what America's going to do, and that's human nature.
1: And as we will see in future episodes, um, and somebody I can't remember who it was, somebody warned me in Facebook not to take a Chomskyian view of things. Um, so I will be backing stuff up with quotes uh, uh, wherever possible. Mm. But yeah. there was there was there was a deliberate. Understanding at um, a political level in the United States in the, the mid-40s and the 50s that the objective, America's objective uh, in World War II was to come out of it as the leading economic and military power. That was deliberate. They, they deliberately wanted to delay their entrance into the war to make sure everyone else was fucking crushed, uh, particularly the Brits and the French. Um, because the, the Brits and the French controlled major economic blocks uh, right. where the US couldn't trade or had limited trading anyway before World War II and the US had a genuine incentive to see the British Empire and the French uh, empires crushed for economic reasons. And this again, I'll back this up with quotes in later episodes. Um, also interesting to note that... Uh, In 1934, membership of the United States Communist Party was about 30,000 people. Um, Mm. The estimated membership of the German-American Bund, the Nazi sympathizers, was about 25,000 in 1938. Wow. And these are are things that were a reflection of the economic troubles and the political troubles of the United States during the 30s. There was growing support, and again, we're going to talk about this in upcoming episodes. Growing support for socialism in the United States. Um, uh, uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack, one congressman said, "I'm for catching every Japanese in America, Alaska, and Hawaii now, and putting them in concentration camps. Damn Jeez. them!
0: Let's get rid of them." Jesus. And although they F- can't no, all be guilty, they can't all be guilty. And That's although
1: if FDR may not have agreed. He calmly signed Executive Order 66. No, yeah. wait, that was the Emperor no. in Star Wars. It was Executive Order <laughs> 9066. 9066,
0: yeah. yeah. In February 1942,
1: giving the army the power without warrants, indictments, or hearings to arrest every Japanese American on the West Coast, 110,000 men, women, <laughs> and children to take them from their homes, transport them to camps far into the interior and keep them there under prison conditions where they stayed for the rest of the war, three years. Uh, Three-fourths of these were children born in the United States of Japanese parents and therefore American citizens. Mm-hmm. The other fourth were born in Japan and barred by law from becoming citizens. Jeez, yeah. And in 1944, I mean- the Supreme Court upheld the evacuation on the grounds of military necessity.
0: Yeah, when when I mean, I'm just going to say this, and this is true of of everybody. When things are good, I think everybody's better, you know, they are better angels or whatever comes out and we're all nice and we're all compassionate and giving and we're willing to help people. But when you take a human being that is afraid and they don't know what's going to happen, they feel powerless, they are willing to go along with almost, if not anything, to get a sense of security. And that's what the Americans were doing because... You know, Pearl Harbor had been bombed and it was just a matter of time before the Japanese ended up on the California coast. And everybody was just shit scared. And you know, especially with all the stuff that's going on in Europe, um, they just knew it was going to happen. And so they were okay with this because they weren't the ones going into the camps and they felt a little safer because of it. Again, that's horrible, but it's just absolutely human nature, and that will never change.
1: Yeah, I disagree with that. That's an apologist view of it.
0: I mean, Uh, okay, well, you're wrong, but that's.
1: (laughs) You can tell the character of a person truly comes out when times are tough. And I think it's true with a nation. The character of a nation really shines through when things are tough. How much do you really believe in your principles isn't evidenced when times are good. It's evidenced when times are bad and you're up against the wall. That's when you find out the true character. Like we we talk about Roosevelt. Well, you know, he lost the use of his legs, and yet he was able to maintain this optimism. That's you know, his true character yeah. shining through. But that's
0: why he's so that's why he's so rare. And, and what you said is absolutely true. But I think reality shows that that belongs in a book of philosophy on a dusty shelf in a library. It doesn't fit the vast majority of. The human race. And that's sad to say, but I think that's true as well. So I see what you're saying and I agree with you, but I think it's more of an ideal than a practice, at least on this planet right now with people the way they are.
1: Yeah, look, I agree with that. I, it is an ideal, but it's an ideal that we should be striving for. Oh, absolutely. I think. And, absolutely. you know, we elect, we try anyway in, in Western democracies, our... our I, our ideal in that sense is to elect leaders that will do a better job than the you know the average citizen right, would in living right. up to these ideals these philosophies that's what that make have.
0: exactly that's what makes a leader someone who can stay above the fray and make the decisions no matter what happens and lead us during bad times but fuck we are so far away from that now it's it's beyond sad mm.
1: so that's uh you know i, I well. Concentration camps in America with innocent women, men, women, and children.
0: Yeah, for years.
1: You know, okay, they weren't sent to gas chambers, so that's good. But yeah. you know, we we look at, you see plenty of films of Nazis going around on Kristallnacht, taking you know Jews out of their homes and throwing them into concentration camps. And you know, we've seen that how many times in popular mm-hmm. films, hundreds yeah. of times. We've seen that. How many times have you seen in uh, popular Hollywood films or TV shows that happening in California, American troops taking Japanese women and children from their homes and throwing them in concentration camps? It's something that we don't like to
0: talk about. Yeah. No, I'm uncomfortable. So Uh it doesn't exist. Like that. Yeah. And
1: yeah. that is something, again, in a mature society, you go, yeah, okay, it's a bit like um, Roosevelt's quote, right? You you do stuff and you fuck up and you admit yeah. it and you, you learn it. from it. You, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I think these things need a lot more public exposure. Shit, you know, we grab these men when we we threw them into jail. Jo- Why? Like yeah. you know, we've had you hear mention of it because you know, with treatment of Muslims in the last ten or so years. In the United States, but it doesn't get the amount of public exposure I think it should have. Talk about well, what was that all about, and what can we learn from that? How do we make sure that doesn't happen again? And, and you know, uh, and all fairness, it hasn't happened again. America hasn't been going around, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, rounding up Muslims and throwing them into concentration camps. Right. You do round up black men generally and throw them into privatized prisons, yes. which is similar an approach mm-hmm. but uh, anyway that's another issue yeah all right that is the end of our FDR episodes unless you've got something you want to
0: close J- just off. that uh, hopefully people have a, um a better understanding. there was there were some quotes I wanted to do real quick shit where did it go but yeah hopefully hopefully people have got a, a much better understanding of um FDR. Here we go. I just just want to give you three quotes real quick. It's about communism. I know we're going to cover this later, but I think it puts a nice capsule on FDR. FDR said, I do not believe in communism any more than you do, but there's nothing wrong with the communist in this country. Several of the best friends I have are communists. And then Churchill says, socialism is a philosophy of failure, a creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. It's irreverent No, its inherent virtue is the equal of sharing of misery. Well, that's fine, too. But then there's this one guy who was a, I think it was a newspaper publisher, Thomas Sowell, who says, Most people read the Communist Manifesto probably have no idea that it was written by a couple of young men who have never worked a day in their lives, who nevertheless spoke boldly in the name of the workers. So just a lot of different opinions about communism. But I think next time we're going to cover literally the differences between the two, why there was just a so lack of trust between the capitalists and the communists and how which sets up the entire Cold War. They are never, ever going to be able to trust each other because both sides assume the other side is wrong and if not evil.
1: Indeed, indeed. So, uh, to finish up, I want to read another review. Um, Cool. This one is from DK, David Kelly, long-time supporter of the show. The journey begins. Another excellent podcast from Ray and Cam, the masters of punk history podcasting. I like this punk history thing coming out. It's good. This time it's the Cold War, contemporary history for which they can not only rely on their own memories and experiences as primary sources, they are bound to become playmakers as the story continues to unfold. The Cold War is not over. While the Praetorian Guard, Alexander the Great's vast spy network, and the Gestapo may only survive in the history books, the CIA, FBI, MI6, French Resistance, Mossad, Stasi, and the KGB all live on in one form or another. We're going to die. They still have many agents, double agents, sympathisers, lawyers, guns and money and nothing much to do except exercise soft power. They will all soon have bulging dossiers on Ray and Cam. As the <laughs> podcast true. evolves to become the Cold War's definitive, definitive, fuck, definitive. I can't say that word. Definitive. Uh Revisionist Journal Don't fucking correct me, Harris I'll come over there and I'll sick Rob Irwin on your ass Uh (laughs) The Cold War's Definitive Revisionist Journal Of Record I don't need Uh your help Ray and Cam will need to withstand Every technique of influence, persuasion And threat these organisations Have perfected This is epitomised in the acronym M-I-C-E Money, ideology, compromise And ego
0: Ray Mm. and Cam,
1: be careful Expect the CIA to offer you fast cars, luxury holidays, and paper bags full of dark money to influence the editorial direction of great yeah. narrative. Bring it on. I can't wait. You must resist.
0: No.
1: Expect an invitation to dinner from Bob Geldof or Bono as they <laughs> seek to influence your mind. Or an invitation to share the finest Cuban cigars with Fidel Castro for the same yet opposite purpose. That would- Beware at your next Vegas trip the Kim Philby characters hiding in plain sight, seeking to flatter you and be your friend and patron. Then there will be the official denials, the deflections, the personal attacks, and the PR spin. There will be threats to family and friends, letters with white powder in them, and bomb threats. <laughs> Finally, when all this fails, you will be stalked by a silent assassin. Oh my be God. very careful. Be very wary of why exactly you are being awarded the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Peace Prize. What are they wanting in return? Don't compromise. From all sides of the conflict, there will be disaffected Cold War warriors with secret documents hidden in dusty attics just waiting for a channel they can trust to be the new Deep Throat. This podcast is it. There will be explosive revelations in encrypted emails from Edward Snowden and Julian Assange with more twists than a Jean Le Carré novel. These revelations will become known as the Podcast Papers and Riley Gate. I look forward to the Tell All interviews with Daniel Ellsberg, Tony Blair, Henry Kissinger, Richard Pearl, Donald Rumsfeld, Karl Rove, Mikhail Gorbachev, Vladimir Putin, Rupert Murdoch, Bob Dylan and Nina as they all seek to spin the story their way. And above all, Ray and Cam, you must be prepared to resist the seductions of the next Matahari or Mandy Rice Davies. Hmm. These spy agencies will be ruthless in their efforts to compromise you. Five stars, David Kelly.
0: Thank you, David Kelly. And I'd like to announce that this was the last episode of The Cold War. We're done, where we'll be moving on to Charlemagne and our Porsches. So if anybody wants to bribe us to stop, please look me up and, and come find me. I'm ready.
1: Yeah, like, yeah. please. Please yes. bribe us. Please, please. Please bribe us. Uh, I just want to – I mentioned this on Facebook before I wrap it, too. I supported a Kickstarter campaign recently, um, and um, it's worth knowing about. I uh, can't remember the guy's name. I should have had my notes here. But he's running a Kickstarter to release um, CIA documents. Uh, Michael Best is his name. Um, if you Google publishing uh, CIA Kickstarter, you'll find his uh, thing. Um, he raised nearly $15,000 to do this project. I was one of the supporters. Actually, I think we were. I may have stolen our... Money, Ray, to support it. No problem. Because I thought it'd be useful. Basically, yep. what he said was, um, there's like 13 million pages of CIA documents that have been released under the Freedom of Information Act. So they're 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 available for the public to read, but the CIA doesn't make it easy to read them. They're not. Gotcha. You, they, they don't put them online, and you're mm-hmm. not able to. You, you know, they won't. They're not allowed to leave Langley. So you have to go in. And you can look at them and you can copy them, but right. they, they only have like one photocopier and it's busy. Yeah. And it's a hand crank one, yeah. Yeah, they make yeah. it as hard as possible. So here's what he said. He said, look, um, I will, if you, if you raise the funds, um, here, let me read what he actually wrote. Um, this is Brilliant. Hey, we're going to read his campaign. You need to listen. Accessing information isn't easy. Researchers have to go to the back of the third floor library at the National Archives building in Maryland, which is unfortunately unstaffed for half the day. <laughs> Tucked away in the library are the only computers that can access the millions of pages of declassified records. If researchers ask the main information desk, they're answered with confused stares and incorrect <laughs> directions. Researchers trying to look up on the National Archives website where to access the computers won't find it on the page about doing research at that location or on the page for electronic records at that location. That information is tucked away on the page for online databases, despite not being online. The CIA admits that the arrangement may be inconvenient and present an obstacle to many researchers... But the only way to describe the experience of finding and accessing the records is by comparing it to this scene from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I won't play. (laughs) Once at the computers, visitors aren't allowed to save any of the already digitized documents. Instead, they have to print the documents out while under several kinds of electronic surveillance. If they want to share those documents with the world at large, they have to be scanned back in and uploaded. Of the roughly 13 million pages on the database, just over 1 million have been printed, most of which remain unpublished and unavailable to the general public. So here's his plan. Scan and upload as much as possible for everyone to access for free. So Mm -hmm. basically what he wanted to do was to buy a fairly modern scanner, portable scanner that he could wheel in there, Mm -hmm. high-speed scanner, And um, then he's going to, you know, scan the fuck out of them and upload them. (laughs) So he spent, so this is what the money covered. A $5,500 Fujitsu scanner can do up to 90 pages a minute um, and a MacBook to scan them all into um, and a whole bunch of USB sticks. And so I got the first USB stick from him this week. Uh, It's a 30 gigabyte USB stick with 30 gigabytes of files on it. I think there's 51,000 scanned CIA documents on my little USB stick. Damn. And he's dedicating, you know, a shitload of his own time and energy and resources to just go in there uh, every weekend and scan the fuck out of the CSR documents and make them available. He's going to put them all online when he's finished. So shout out Michael Best. Um, uh, yeah, good good work, sir. Good work. Yeah. I mean, fucking what a great project. Just one guy. You know what? I'm going to make these documents. And and I've already scanned it. There's documents mentioning Stalin. There's documents in there on Martin Borman. I read a I read one document. I haven't looked through it much detail, but I just scanned. It cropped across the Marty Borman file. Um, obviously, one of the, the head Nazis. Um, right. the, the first document I opened was somebody uh, in the American government um, in like 1944 writing a letter to the German fucking specialty department of the CIA or the OSS at the time saying, can you tell us who Martin Borman is? His name's come up and uh, we'd love we'd love to know. Apparently he's fairly high ranking. Can you give us a profile yeah. on him? That's hilarious. Um, and then the next document is the profile that they wrote. So anyway... That's kind of cool. I'm sure these documents will be very useful over the course of this show. Yeah. All right. Fuck it. We're an hour and, uh, and a half down. We got to go.
0: Actually, hold on. I, I I'm kind of known for ending on a low note. I don't want to disappoint here. I just wanted that's to share what, with everybody. That's what you're talking about. Your sex life. So <laughs> <It's like laughs> <But>, Heather says. <laughs>
1: Sorry,
0: keep going. I told her to quit anyway. Tell anybody. Okay, so um, so in 1936, uh, uh, FDR has his next election. He beats Alfred Landon. He wins 60.8 percent of the popular vote. He wins 523 electoral college. The other guy only wins eight. In 1940, which is obviously a very pivotal election, you know, does America get into the war? Do, do we not? Uh, it's just FDR's third term. He wins 54.8. Part uh, uh, percent of the vote, promises not to send U.S. troops into foreign wars. However, he does say, uh, but I don't, let see, I do not ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. So he's already starting to say, it's okay if you want to think about entering the war. you want It's okay if you want to think it's okay for America, because that's where he's steering them at. Anyway, 1944, he wins his fourth election by winning 53.4% of the, of the vote. So it was pretty close. But overall, he was doing what he needed to do to stay into power, make the people pretty happy. But he had an overall objective the entire time to help Churchill and Stalin as much as he could. I promise not to send American troops into war, unless I do. Unless you want me to, then I will regret. His
1: fingers behind his back when That's he right. said that. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you, Ray. We'll be back uh, in the in a couple of weeks with another episode uh, where we will be getting into um, the ideological differences between uh, both sides and and sort of explaining the relationship between the UK, the USA and uh, Soviet Empire uh, between sort of the Russian Revolution 1917 and the Grand Alliance in 1941 because a lot of shit went down between those three parties in that period of time that obviously influence uh, uh, (laughs) the level of trust and the level of dialogue that happens um, and lack of trust
0: Yeah. yeah yeah thank you buddy thank you an iron curtain has descended across the continent